Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 200. Yes, we are at another milestone episode. Three years ago, we kicked off the VentureFizz podcast to bring you all the amazing stories from leading entrepreneurs and investors. It's been an absolute blast, and I do want to say thank you to Alex, who made it happen initially, Dan, who is our podcast editor, and of course, a special shout out to all of our amazing guests. For episode 200, I'm really excited to share with you my interview with Helen Grainer, CEO of Turtle. Helen is a legend in the tech industry and one of the co-founders of iRobot, which brought robots into our homes with the Roomba. At this point, I can't imagine not having our Roomba. It's an absolute game changer. Helen's next company, Sci-Fi Works, revolutionized the drone industry, and now she is CEO of Turtle, which is looking to tackle another domestic chore, and it's one that is absolutely dreaded in my opinion, and that is weeding. I think I was scarred as a kid, and if a robot can take that away, please sign me up. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like what Helen envisions for the future of robotics and drones, her background growing up, including how R2-D2 was her inspiration, plus her time at MIT, the story of iRobot from the early days of the company to bringing the Roomba to market and building a pillar tech company to an IPO, the details on Sci-Fi Works and how they helped push the drone industry forward, why she joined Turtle and how the product works, which is absolutely brilliant, advice for founders on building a company centered around innovation, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $79 a month. Plus, you can get 10% off select packages by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Helen. Helen, thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you for many reasons. Uh, you know, your professional history has been amazing. Um, you know, my, my wife was actually a skeptic of the Roomba. Oh, I hope you converted her. <laughs> oh my God, she cannot live without it. Like so many people, you name it, right? So we named ours Alice after the Brady Bunch, of course, and we could not live without Alice. I mean, it's just phenomenal product. So kudos and thank you for thank you. You know, being part of the team that created it. Um, and what you're working on now, Turtle, is solving an even more just devastating problem of, of weeding. Like, <laughs> I, you know, vacuum is one thing, but weeding is a whole different ballgame. So we're going to talk about that. But before we get into the, you know, the kind of your background story and all the amazing companies that you've created, um, I thought it'd be a good opportunity where we could talk about kind of the, the, the future, right? Like there's some things that are happening now with robotics that seem very near term. And I'm talking like autonomous driving, drone delivery, mm -hmm. and then there's probably some bigger picture stuff. So w where do you envision kind of where we're heading uh, with robotics, you know, drones and you know, things like that. It's such an exciting time in the field of robotics, especially for a robot geek like me. <laughs> yeah, totally. um, there's so much excitement, there's so much invention, and there's so much capital going into it. It's amazing from where I started off in this field in the 90s. Um, my opinion, I think autonomous cars are a little further off than some of the companies are saying. Um, I'm so glad there's a lot of um, excitement about it. There's a lot of push into it. Um, 
but there's a lot of corner cases and there's a lot of mass going at a very high speed, <laughs> which is a recipe for uh, potentially something going wrong. I believe um, robots in the logistics train is where it, um, you know, it's it, it's where it's making the most splash today, and also where it will in the, you know, in the near future. Uh, for example, there was a company here in Boston, Kiva, right, that amazing. was doing fulfillment robots. Amazon bought them, and now there's like hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, um, getting stuff to the right places in the fulfillment centers, but it goes further than that. It goes uh, getting the goods there, um, harvesting. Um, but my favorite and the one I think at the most near term is drone delivery. Now, people disagree with that. <laughs> From a technical standpoint, it's a big airspace and there's not a lot of stuff into it. This we can do. <laughs> so um, in other words, it's at it's at CVS, it's at Walmart, it's at an Amazon delivery center, and you want it immediately, snap your fingers, and 30 minutes later, it's there. Mm -hmm. So if you had to predict, right, mm -hmm. and this is purely a prediction, what, like, what do you think the time frame is? Is this a two-year thing, a five-year thing, a 10-year thing? Well, it's already happening. Um, UPS has it working down at the Villages, a retirement center in sure. mm -hmm. uh, homes in, in Florida, where CVS is now delivering. Uh, medication um, with, with drones. The reason it's working there and not elsewhere is purely regulatory <laughs> uh, because that's private land and you can get permission to deliver on private land, but it's harder to get permission over public um, throughways. Yeah. Well, and the name's going to escape me right now, but what's the company on the West Coast that's doing the delivery of medications and, you know, like they, they have a very big vision oh, of how... zip Zipline. Zipline, yes. Zipline. Uh, them, I, as far as I know, they're mostly working over in Africa, delivering blood and other medical supplies. Uh, wonderful, focused application. Wonderful group of engineers. Though. Yeah. So this, so it's it's happening. This is exciting. I can't wait because I, I. Yeah, that's that's where I think it's 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 going next. I mean, people talk about autonomous, you know, passenger cars. Right? Uh, I'm sorry, um, flying cars. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so people talk about flying cars, but I think if. The FAA doesn't believe it's safe for us to fly unmanned drones. The chances of it being safe <laughs> to fly an unmanned car with a person in, because unless you're going to require a pilot, that passenger is payload. And those are, again, pretty big systems. So I say start small, get all the bugs out, and then we'll be good to go on uh, having no traffic with flying vehicles. Yeah, exciting, exciting. So, well, let's talk about your background. So growing up, you know, what, what were you like as a child? You know, like, what was your first computer? Like, kind of how did you get involved in robots? Like, what piqued your interest? Well, I was very shy, um, very geeky, <laughs> as you might expect. Um, I, my, my parents got a TRS-80 Radio Shack computer when I sure, was remember it well. 11. Mm -hmm. And um, my dad took me to a programming class at Radio Shack. And I was flabbergasted that the adults couldn't get it. <laughs> like they, really just, they couldn't get it. And it's like, what do you mean you don't understand of this? You know, of course they can't follow that program. The syntax isn't right. <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, that kind of stuff came naturally to me. And I saw Star Wars when I was about the same age, uh, 10 or 11, and on the big screen. And I fell in love with O2D2. And that's what made me want to build robots with my life. Mm. And then let's let's kind of get to you know kind of how it all began. So uh, you were your studies at MIT. Mm -hmm. 
I, I went to MIT after seeing a challenge show on PBS. Uh, it was called the 270 contest. By the way, it's now the first uh, contest that uh, goes to high school students and high school students compete. But at the time, the same people were doing it at MIT, Woody Flowers. And it was the um, 270 competition. I saw that on TV and said, I want to go there because those kids, they're building robots and they look like they're having a heck of a lot of fun doing it. So is it true on the first days of school, you, you met your co one of your co-founders? Yes, yes. Uh, Colin and I uh, met one of the first days of classes. And because he and I were both doing a lot of electrical engineering and a lot of mechanical engineering classes, we ended up in a lot of the same classes over the four years and then grad school at the Artificial Intelligence Lab. All right, let's talk about the Artificial Intelligence Lab, especially, you know, kind of, I can't imagine what's happening there now, but what was happening when you were there? Like, is it, you know, cutting edge always, of course, MIT, but like, what were you seeing then? And now kind of thinking back, like, wow, that was such a moonshot, but we were trying to actually make that happen or just anything that, you know, you remember from. It, it was amazing. There was a lot of work in robotic arms and manipulation. Um, my advisor, Ken Salisbury, and that all that moved into intuitive, surgical type, uh, you know, all that core research moved into uh, Intuitive Surgical, which is one of the largest manufacturers of, uh, you know, robots for operations today. And one of the largest manufacturers of robots, I should say, uh, and they use for operations. Uh, and then my, my academic advisor, Rod Brooks, was building these little robots with insectoid brains, you know, thinking about it, well, with very modest computational assets, flies can do a heck of a lot. So why start with a big mainframe computer? Why not make the embodied and um, get them out in the environment and see what they can do kind of from the ground up approach with multi-threaded operating systems. So that's the approach we took at iRobot um, in a lot of different areas. And, um, you know, it's not that the other approach can't be used, they can kind of meet in the middle, but it's, it's good to get the basics, to get the robots be able to survive, exist in their environments and be able to get around, be mobile on their own before you start adding other layers. So survival instincts, baby, basically. So this was the foundation of what ultimately started to build a company around. So how did you realize, okay, there's something here that we can commercialize? And did you think you would always start a company someday or that was just, just kind well, of- Well, I always thought I'd start a company. My dad uh, was an entrepreneur. He started a, a import-export company with uh, chemicals. Um, but when uh, Rod and Colin, um, you know, teaming up with them to start uh, iRobot, we, we knew there was something there, but we didn't have a business plan. And I don't recommend this approach, by the way. It's a bad <laughs> approach, <laughs> but we didn't have a plan. This, this is know. 1990, right? 1990, like, yes. Yeah, so for context, like email was... We were building very cool robots. They were getting a lot of press attention, so we figured we would start a company. It wasn't typical for kids out of school to start a company those days. Now it's, you know, that's what all the venture capitalists want, right? But at that time it was like, no, you have to go get the experience. You have to go, you know, learn the ropes, et cetera. But- Go work know, at IBM. <laughs> yeah, we, we looked around and you, you could go work um, for government, you know, a government lab, or you could work in academia. And uh, we had a different vision, right? The vision was always to build practical robots that go out that people could use. <laughs> So starting the company, um, originally th those, it was focused around robots for space exploration. Is that? That was, that was one of the 18 different <laughs> business 
different models that we experimented with and got quite far with. Like we had strategic partners in, in many of them that you know gave us millions of dollars to do the development um, work. Everything from space exploration, which you, as you mentioned, it was the first, one of the first ones. Um, we were doing um, downhole robots with um, Baker Hughes. We were doing toys with Hasbro. We did some large cleaning robots with SC Johnson Professional. Um, and we started winning some government contracts to build robots that were for law enforcement and for um, Army Navy. And who came up with the name originally? Well, originally the the company was called IS Robotics, which was a name I always passionately hated. <laughs> it is boring. So you know, I told people it stood for Iconoclastic Salamanders, but <laughs> it, didn't. it stood for Intelligent Systems. Um, and then we had another company called Artificial Creatures, which is a name that I always enjoyed. <laughs> mm. uh, but, you know, it was judged to not take things too seriously. In about 19... 99, um, we had built an internet connected robot, which we called the iRobot for obvious reasons. By the way, that was, it was named before Apple started the i trend. Right, yeah, they want that domain back. <laughs> and we, that was our flagship product. We thought we were mistaken. We actually pulled it from the market because we, we couldn't um, get the technology quite good enough for the consumer use. Um, we believe it will come back though, that people will have internet connected robots in their homes. But anyway, the iRobot, um, one of our board members had said, it's very common to take the flagship product and just use that as the name of the company. So we called the whole company iRobot. But it also because of the Asimov books, because it connects the personal with the robotics. I, I really think it's a name that just works on many levels. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but yeah, it's like a great name that you guys, you know, secured. So VCs were not funding robotics companies, right? So, so, so how did you keep the company going? you know, trying to figure out where are we going to you know, be able to sustain a business that's going to hopefully grow. And then finally, who, who were the first believers that actually did, you know, when you raise capital, fund your company? We, we had a motto thinking back. It was uh, any robot for money, not, not <laughs> anything for money, but any robot any for robot. money. <laughs> um, we were partnering with uh, large companies. The idea was, hey, you bring the, um, the market knowledge, the know-how, we bring the creativity, the engineering. Um, we use your, you know, get to market um, strategies and processes. And oh, by the way, you bring the money. <laughs> and, and, and many of them did. And we actually got quite far down a lot of these lines. We had an oil robot, you know, doing a test wall a mile down the hole in Shreveport, Louisiana for a joint industry project. We had a, a toy on the market called My Real Baby. Which you could find on YouTube, because I did have to look that up, and I found it. You can find it on YouTube. Um, uh, we bought our hearts and souls into it. We, you know, we thought it was wonderful. Some people thought it might seem like Chucky, but everyone has their opinions. <laughs> it was. It's very lifelike. I mean, it does exactly what the pitch was. Maybe a little too of the uncanny valley, but... Um, Really, when you build toys, and I mean, what I learned from that is when you build toys and games, it might be a huge hit, but it might be nothing in even a year or two after you put it on the market. And it really solidified our belief that we wanted to build utilitarian robots that would stand the test of time, something that, you know, people wouldn't want to give up. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And who were the early investors in the company? The very first one was uh, Acer. They had Acer Computers had a venture capital arm that was looking for MIT spinouts. So they were the first one. And then First Albany uh, came in second. And then I can probably list the whole bunch, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but they were wonderful investors because they really supported the founders. They came in every round and they gave us a lot of great advice along the way. Um, you know, the Acer um, representative had been through initial product launches and knew what to expect with returns and what we had to do to set up and, and things like that. There was so much in-depth experience that they, they offered. Now, did you start to get traction more on that defense military, you know, the PacBot, before starting to focus on the consumer aspect of we, what you were doing? We actually started to get traction in that we got government contracts mm. to do research into robotics. Now, as a country, we've chosen to put a lot of the core research money through the military. So some of it was more, you know, basically just to support the industry. I remember, and this is NASA, not the military, but I remember talking to some guys who had funded us from NASA later, and I was like, you know, you, know, you, you, you had a good robot team working on these Mars missions. Why would you fund us? And I remember their response. Uh, I think it speaks volumes for NASA. And he told me, because we wanted an industrial base to exist, so we were willing to support a small company with no track record because of that. And... Now an industrial base in robotics exists. <laughs> amazing. I mean, because when I saw some of your other uh, interviews, you know, you talked about competing against like the large defense contractors with the same robotics, but you guys, they would ask you to do X, like have this robot walk up steps. And I assume the other ones actually created a robot that would try to walk up steps, but you took a different approach and that's helped, helped you land the contract. Yes. Um, once we had a, once we got a contract to deliver um, a report about how we would in the future build a robot that climbs stairs and instead of delivering just a report we built the robot and then we wrote a report about it uh, and we've discovered since then that you're not actually allowed to do that with government money <laughs> you, you know you were supposed to do what they say <laughs> um, but it worked it worked out well because instead of when people came back and say no that won't work we could say Here's a video of it. And when I showed those first videos of the um, the military robots being able to climb stairs, being able to fall out of a first floor um, window, I would actually get applause from the audience. It was it was very very motivating. That's so awesome. All right, well let's talk about the the, the Roomba. Um, so when did you decide that okay, there's an opportunity here to build a robot for consumers? Well. Uh, actually, um, we were working in the cleaning industry for SC Johnson Professional and Tenant, trying to build a large autonomous cleaning robot. And one of our engineers, he was actually our first employee, Joe Jones, he wrote a white paper saying, you know, this is great and one day we'll get there. But what we should be doing first is the simplest thing. How about a robot with these kinds of sensors, about this big, round so it's easy to navigate, that could get around and you know we looked at it and we couldn't see a reason why we couldn't do it <laughs> and it seemed a heck of a lot simpler than what we were trying to do to negotiate around um, a store <laughs> with a cleaning robot at, at night um, very very large system and um, we started putting some money against it 
thinking would come up with a reason why someone hasn't done this. And we never found that reason why someone hasn't done this. Now, there were some robotic um, cleaners on the market at the time. There was one by Electrolux, but they were thousands of dollars. And we were figuring that to try it out, to take your wallet out and try a robot in your home, you're probably not gonna start. You might get to a few thousand dollars if they prove really useful. But if we could come in at $200, then you wouldn't even have to ask your significant other. You could just try it out. Mm -hmm. And how did you go about building it initially? Because obviously you need to manufacture these things. And how did you get shelf space to actually like sell them, right? Like, I mean, the, the retailers aren't just saying, sure, let's you know sell these future robotics to consumers. Mm -hmm. Well, um, originally we didn't have any money to, you know, we had spent the venture capital that we had just building the robot. And so we got to launch, we only had about 30K left. So we did the entire Roomba launch <laughs> with 30K. Wow. We had built up a lot of goodwill with the tech press over the years mm -hmm. by, you know, building innovative robots. And we sent them, um, they're not a prototype, but the actual units before they were um, publicly released. And the reviewers actually could put them in their homes, um, try them out and see that they actually work. But it, whereas in the past, people had sent them robots and they were either, you know, supposed to be a companion or a butler and they didn't really do anything. For the first time, they could put a robot down in their home and it actually did something useful to them and they raved about it. So we had article in time and all the tech press when we first launched the Roomba. So it created a lot of excitement and that got us those first Christmas sales. We did get to places, there was an infomercial, we did get to places like Hamaka Schlemmer and others that you know helped drive those initial early adopter sales. What point did you start to see like, wow, this is going to be a massive opportunity? Like, I mean, I don't know what, what like what point did people start sharing videos on YouTube of cats riding on, on Roombas. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't quite after that first Christmas, although the Christmas sales and the press went really well, then, you know, sales drop, 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 drop after the holiday season and this return. So we thought, hey, maybe this might not make it. But what happened is that Pepsi dropped a commercial with um, Dave Chappelle from Comedy Central storing in it. Funny. And it never mentioned the Roomba, but it looked like our robot. And so all of a sudden, we, it's almost like we had a multi-million dollar advertising campaign that we had absolutely nothing to do with it. So sometimes as an entrepreneur, you just have to be lucky. But you make your own luck by being out there at the time when, when this happened, right? That is amazing. Okay. Uh, you asked me about the cats. I don't know when the cats actually started, but, the, you know, there's multiple ca cats riding on Roombas at 9, 10, 12 million views. I, I don't entirely get it myself. <laughs> um, also, with uh, um, you know, people have taken this little Boomba seat and put it on and had babies right on the room. Now, now I'm not recommending this. We don't not think it's a good idea. <laughs> I may or may not have tried it with my own child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it's just that viral coefficient that that consumer companies are looking for. That it just naturally happens, and people love the product, and they're putting it on YouTube, and yeah millions and millions of views um it, and you actually have one of your robots ring the opening bell of the nasdaq in 2005 right not not the roomba but the, one of the packbots 
Yes, we were offered the opportunity to ring the bell and me and Colin thought it was much more appropriate that the PackBot do it and become the first robot to open the NASDAQ because um, that robot is a hero, right? That robot is credited with saving the lives of hundreds of soldiers and thousands of civilians by the U.S. military. Um, so what was, that, what was that day like? You know, you build a company from scratch and you're, you know, you know going public. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. The whole roadshow, the private planes, the over the top, someone going and getting the keys to the hotels before we arrived. It was it was just an amazing experience. Having the opportunity, not every company has the opportunity to open the, the, the NASDAQ. So um, that was wonderful. And then culminating in a party, which I won't tell you about <laughs> when we flew back home to Boston. <laughs> But I will say there was bull riding going on. <laughs> oh, okay. You got. It. I mean, it's it's it it's a topical. milestone. No, it was topical. <laughs> it was a milestone of the company, and you have to celebrate. So, uh, now, talk about like you know expanding, right? So then you know you expanded it into other products like mm -hmm. Scuba, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So talk about that, like, because one of the things I've always admired about iRobot is it's always been you know still you know, very uh, innovative, right? It's just a very driven culture of innovation. So talk about the expansion of different products from there and then kind of your biggest lessons learned of, you know, scaling a company. Well, I would say we, we, we tried with the scuba and I think what was learned is that you shouldn't put water on the floor and pick it back up again because it makes it messy <laughs> to clean up. <laughs> uh, now they have the Brava, which is wonderful. I Brava, use it all yeah. the time. Uh, I, that came in through the acquisition of uh, Evolution. Um, I actually, we took the company public in 2005. I left in 2008. I spent three more years on the board. So, um, you know, I was there maybe 21 years in total. Amazing. <laughs> uh, and I, I, you know, I, I, I was chairman of the company and I thought, Hey, I really love the in, innovation side of things. I really love getting new things out there and maybe it's time to move on and do another one. Well, let's talk about the next company. So Sci-Fi, like, so what, what was Sci-Fi Works all about? Well, um, I looked around at what was happening in the robot space and I saw, at, at the time, 2008, drones hadn't really happened yet. So the jumping into that would be um, wonderful from a business standpoint, but also uh, from a learning experience, right? There's a, drones are like a magic technology to get from point A to point B. When I looked at what, um, what you could do with a drone that you couldn't do with a ground robot. I thought, I want to, I want to work on drones. <laughs> so uh, I started a company to do that. Now it turns out that drones happened much quicker than I expected at the time. And they went um, through the innovation to consumer, you know, um, driven by a Chinese company, DJI, very, very quickly. So we didn't really have the opportunity there that I thought there would be. Because that was the original plan, like it was to be consumer drone. Because I saw a video on, I think, YouTube, of course, uh, that was showing the, the drone that your company created. And it was geared towards a, a consumer mindset. Yes, but we didn't. We, we invented something very cool, a, a drone that flew levelly so you can get better pictures. And the sensors that you'd have on for autonomy later wouldn't be moving around. So I think there's still... Um, that design is very good and could be um, used by someone, but the 
the, the, the whole field had moved over to the Far East very quickly and the costs were just something we could not compete with. Mm -hmm. um, so we did actually focus on the military side and we had our tethered drones, robots that stay up 24-7. Um, we had drones flying for weeks at a time. So a whole different set of issues that we um, worked on powering them, really long, long flights. Uh, we had them deployed in Iraq and Syria. We, I had folks come up to me at conferences from special forces, hey, hey, that thing is saving lives. Um, uh, so we were doing uh, very well on, on that. Um, I took a job with the uh, military next. <laughs> so um, the person who deployed the packbot in Afghanistan first, the, the robots that we sent over to do bomb disposal. He took the top job in army acquisitions and he asked me to come in and act as an advisor. So I did that for two years. Wow, what, so what did you learn from that experience? Well, um, I can't talk too much about it, but I like to see the workings from the inside, but I was also able to help a lot of small companies navigate through some of the government bureaucracy, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, oh, that's, that's great. Get some innovation to the people that are putting their lives at risk. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about the recent mm -hmm. uh, announcement of, of you joining a, a new company that's building robots that, again, you know, it's, it's solving a problem that I don't think anyone could possibly like if not, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that weeding is the worst thing in the world. I, 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 <laughs> so, so talk about what you're up to now. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a gardener, so I know the tedious maddening, uh, how, how tedious and maddening weeding is. Um, but, you know, Turtle is really attacking the uh, outdoor smart home space. Um, there's a whole bunch of companies attacking it indoors, but we look at it, it's grossly underserved outdoors and there's a lot robots can do specifically because I do want to stay specifically on robots. Um, you know, people are spending a lot of time weeding their garden. Um, this is a task that robots could be, could be doing. Um, so we have the turtle garden weeding robot. We like to say it runs on sunshine. It's solar powered and it goes out patrols and takes care of the weeding every day. It doesn't do the weeding like a person would. It doesn't go to your garden and pull out the weeds it's too late then, right? Uh, then you have a massive cleanup effort. You have to have somewhere to dispose of them. Instead, it's, it's actually ingenious. It keeps weeds from growing with its um, high camphor micro tilling wheels. It, you know, squishes them every day. And then it has a weed whacker on it. So if any of them dare to poke its little head up through the soil, off with its head. And those um, pieces, just get, dissolve back into the soil and become nutrients instead of taking the nutrients away. So it really is the right way to do the weeding job. And that's why I joined and that's why I'm so excited about it because I think when people start to try to have robots do the job the way humans do, that's when they get into trouble and the complexity expands and the cost goes up and the intelligence involved has to go up. If you can think about the job differently, um, like we're doing with Turtle, you can have a robot that gets the job done much more efficiently than a human. And it's the only way to do it this efficiently. And that's what I guess surprised me when I was learning about the product was 
you know, the weed whacker piece, I was like, oh, it's just like snipping the weeds. But then I, it was like, well, this actually eventually kills the weeds. Like it's not just. Yes. If they don't photosynthesize, they do just die and the seed just gets dissolved back into the soil. So there's no, um, you know, there's no mounds of weeds that you have to find a dispose of location for. It really just keeps the nutrients in your, in your soil. Now there's other ways to do it. You could put down mulch. I put down mulch and I've got a bunch of slugs over the garden, or you can put down a weed block, but that's very unnatural because it doesn't let oxygen to the, to the soil and things don't rot like they're supposed to naturally. And it's, it, you know, if you pull it up, it, it smells extremely gross. Um, I have tried all these things <laughs> or you could um, do herbicides, which I would never do in my garden. Right. Right. Of course. So people want a better solution and we're able to provide that with the turtle. So is this like, where's the product? Like, is it available now for consumers to buy? Is it like in market? It's available now. And uh, it started as a Kickstarter and they got a lot of support from the community. We've delivered uh, well over 2000 of them and we get just tremendous customer um, reviews. We ask the customers, would you be disappointed, very disappointed or not you know, not care too much if we took it away. And 90, over 90% said they'd be very disappointed or disappointed. Now, this is a, a great team because it's, you know, you talked about Joe, who was one, the one who came up with the initial initial concept idea. He, he's one of the founders of the company, right? Yes, yes. I'm. Uh, it's great to be back working with Joe. He's someone who I've always enjoyed working with. He's a real um, innovator in the field of robotics um big big picture thinker and he really looks at where robots can do things differently and what can we do not the highest tech things but how can we start off with something that works well and build upon that so there's all kinds of additions that we can now look over now now it does the weeding what else can it do in the garden now that we have a mobile base running around maybe I, you know i think there's a I, I'm, I can't share them with you today but i think there's a lot of other things this base can be doing to help people well the obvious one that i think irobot tried to tackle or i've seen others with you know cutting the lawn right that's but there was some challenges right i think with the sensors and having to like map out where your lawn is i never mm -hmm. tried it but i wasn't right. sure. what's beautiful about the turtle is most people have a boundary around their garden already right or if you don't have one already you can either put some rocks or put a two by four you do need to put some little shields like this around any seeds you put in or little tiny seedlings but as soon as they get about two inches high you can take leave them in take them out uh but it it's very very gentle on plants and fierce on weeds <laughs> So there are these other applications like lawns that you either have to bury a boundary wire or have some uh, vision or ultra wideband technology. And, you know, Husqvarna, iRobot, um, uh, iMo, they're working on that. But, you know, I look at the garden spaces, a place where the customers are extremely engaged they want to be in their gardens. They may not like weaving their gardens, right? But it's something that people want to do. So I'm very excited about the space in general because of the customer engagement. And uh, we're helping them with the weaving now, but where else can we help them um, have a beautiful, bountiful garden? Yeah. Well, 
what about like building, like we talked about, you know, the different companies that you've been a part of and how innovative they were. I mean, you know, early to, 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 to the drone market, building consumer robots, you know, first consumer, you know, success story. So how, what advice would you give to other founders that are trying to build products that are, you know, you know, how do we keep that level of innovation centered around our culture? I think things I've learned are make sure you're always open to ideas. Uh, there shouldn't be a set of people at the company where that those are the ideas you listen to. Uh, ideas can come from anywhere. And the job of a good leader is to evaluate the ideas, pick the right one, and to empower the people, you know, to get it done. Uh, no squashing is something that came up because we used to build bug-like robots at the artificial intelligence lab. So the uh, motto was no squashing. That means if someone has an idea, don't immediately say, no, it won't work because of this. But think of the reasons it would work first. And then you have to you know, take your rose-colored glasses off and also look at why it might not work. But uh, many good ideas never see the light of the day because they get squashed in a meeting. What about like figuring out where to focus, right? You talked about the uh, problem you were trying to solve when the Roomba came about, you know, it was this big, massive machine that was going to clean floors at night autonomously, right? So how do you figure out what ideas to kind of double down and focus on to build versus, you know, solving a problem that actually could scale and be met versus something that you think is really cool tech? We have to look at what else is going on in the market. But what we saw with Roomba is a pretty wide open space. You know, there was no one who had taken the market yet. Um, no one who uh, you would think of with a robot vacuum for the home. And, you know, the same with the turtle for the garden. There's no one who you would really think of for robots for the garden. So we think of that as, you know, kind of the blue ocean opportunity, uh, having tech that helps in a underserved marketplace. Got it. What, um, like what, what are the things that you're excited about that you know, are outside of kind of, you know, the space that you're focused on, kind of areas of technology that you see, you know, that are uh, things that appeal to you? Oh, my gosh, there's so many things. I was just reading uh, Susan Hockfield's book, The Age of Living Machines, about uh, building biological <laughs> machines. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's so much going on. Um, in the technology space, uh, the smart home in general, my home, you know, is a smart home. It must have 20 or so Alexas in it, controlling everything from the doors to the water to the, um, you know, I, but what I really remain the most excited about, and I'm not just saying this because I'm the robot lady, (laughs) but what I remain the most excited about is how, instead of just giving people information technology actually does stuff for them, like vacuum the floors, like do the weeding, um, you know, and then the lawns and, and then, you know, the pool cleaning and the leaves and the, um, the snow and, um, you know, everything else that's a tedious job that right now the technology is right to have done robotically. About artificial intelligence, what, what, what do you think are the, the use cases that are on the horizon that you think, uh, you know, are definitely going to impact consumer lives? Well, artificial intelligence is a loaded word. I consider every robot that we've ever built to have artificial intelligence in, inside of it. Sure. Uh, some people now mean deep learning by artificial intelligence, um, you know, uh, neural network, mm-hmm. etc. Um, I, I these have really 
they've opened up a class of problems that we couldn't solve before in recognition and classification that were almost intractable and now we can do them but they're one tool in a tool bag that's a, a, a lot of things have to come together to build a robot and so you know we consider these things a tool in the tool bag and there might be some problems that you know we face a turtle like um, recognizing when a tomato is right but maybe those tools are the right ones to uh, you know to, to do that um, so it's really great for folks in robotics to stay up on everything that's going on in the learning um, uh, research uh, environment because it's going to be important as we put more and more capabilities into these robots. An example is Roomba. When we put the Roomba on the market, it was very localized intelligence. And now, after 20 or so years, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's got a full navigation system on board, so it does more purposeful rows going um, up and down and knows where it is in the environment. So I think the lesson, though, is start out, get something working, and you'll have the opportunity to build those additional layers. If you don't put something on the market and get it working, you'll never be the one to have that opportunity. Yeah, so we have the, the i7 in our home. <laughs> And it's, it, it is amazing. Like I just in the, you know, the, the app, like <laughs> analytics for cleaning your floors. I, and I, I, I geek out to that. I'm like, Oh, that's so cool. I know, so, I, know. I use, I use my Roombas like three times a day, um, <laughs> especially since COVID and we don't have people come in to clean. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, I, it's definitely a run, you know, three, four times before you would probably do your weekly chores and vacuum yeah. once a day. And, and it's amazing how much it picks up. It's just like, how, how is there so, so much dirt mm -hmm. on the floors? Um, but it's just crazy. And, and keeping ants at bay. That's one thing that people don't realize. If you have crumbs on the floor, it can attract ants. Mm -hmm. And if you get them cleaned up really quickly, it keeps the ants at bay too. <laughs> All right. So what are three apps you can't live without? Oh, well, that's easy. The iRobot app, <laughs> Alexa app, and the Turtle app. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, how about any podcasts or, or book recommendations? Well, Venture Fizz. Nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the book I read recently that I enjoyed the most was The Wright Brothers by David McCall okay. um, and The Innovation Stack by the guy who founded Square. Um, not doing the other one. <laughs> no, the other one. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I know who you're talking about. Yes, I saw an interview with him recently. Um, uh, okay, so the original, you know, nine Star Wars, you know, we started off the conversation talking about how R2-D2 inspired you. So we've gone through the nine chapters of the Star Wars movies. Which one is your favorite and which one was your least favorite? Uh, I, won't, I won't talk about my least favorite, but my favorite is still the original with R2-D2. I don't think you can do better than that and it did inspire my career it inspired um you know everything that i love doing so i i can't move away from the first one yeah i mean just the innovation of the movie making process it was i think it was a wandry podcast i listened to or the making I'm of look who's stuck around or too detailed <laughs> yeah yeah that's right that's a good point that's a good point um Empire Strikes Back was mine. I just love that whole story and how the, the twist and turns. It was uh, that was my favorite. Phantom Menace was my least favorite. Like so many other people, I just couldn't, just couldn't, couldn't do it. But anyways, what, what else do you like to do outside of work? Oh, I like um, kayaking. Um, I like uh, 
um, you know, mostly playing with my daughter. <laughs> mm-hmm. And of course, I love gardening. <laughs> there you go. And, but not weeding, but not weeding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the weeding. Like, I, lo- I love gardening when you don't have to weed. Uh, it's a chore that, so I have two daughters and we carve up sections of our, you know, flower beds. Like everyone's got their own section because we're all going to tackle this together. No one wants to be out there doing it. So let's just do it as a family project. But now I've got a great idea of what to get the family for Christmas. I've got a solution for you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, well, Helen, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background. Obviously all the great success stories and, uh, of course the great advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.